So people of God in Christ, one danger in the Christian life is that we uh, 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 face the temptation uh, instead of staying truly obedient to our Father in heaven. We simply, we, we simply trade one sin for another. Perhaps the best example of this is, uh, is in God's Word, or best example in God's Word is the story of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai. Growing impatient uh, because Moses, from their perspective, was taking too much time being up on the mountain, they decided to make a golden calf for themselves to worship. The event drips with irony uh, because uh, uh, there was uh, Moses meeting with God at the top of Mount Sinai, receiving the law of God for the instruction of his people, whom he had just rescued and delivered and saved to the uttermost from their slavery in the land of Egypt. And there was Israel... um, for whom the law of God was being given, yet growing impatient, wondering whether Moses was even still alive, and deciding for themselves that they would create another God. And it's not just irony, it's, it's actually a picture for us, a, an illustration of the fallenness of mankind and our own givenness to so quickly make for ourselves a false god. But then comes the example of trading one sin for another. Aaron left in charge of the of the people of the people while Moses was on the mountain. Aaron certainly didn't like the sound of this proposal from the people to make for themselves a, another god. But instead of saying we need to wait, we need to be patient, Instead, he said, okay, we will go ahead and make this golden calf, but it won't be another God. We will just worship our God, the great I Am, by way of this golden calf that you propose. It was, it was trading one sin for another. Uh, it, was, uh, it was the leap from violating the first commandment to violating the second commandment. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods. The second commandment says, you shall worship me in spirit and in truth. You shall worship me without the use of any image of me, and only according to the instructions that I give you in your worship, for your worship of me. But that was exactly the problem. Not, not, not God's problem, but it was the people's problem that they were not willing to let God be God. They were not willing to wait even a a few days to receive the law of God so that they turned to their own imaginations. What kind of God do we want? Well, we want a God that we can set up and take down later uh, and then set up again when we're ready for him. We want a God that gives us freedom to do our own thing and to do it by our own timing. Well, we start out in this way because the verses before us this morning from Psalm 18 proclaim to us the God of Mount Sinai, which is to say the God who made Israel tremble and to shake with fear. Here is the God that no sinner would create for himself or for herself, but yet the God who truly is. 
the, the one only true God. And passages like, like this one in Psalm 18, uh, passages like this are important for us because otherwise, despite even, even in the new birth, d- despite being born again, even as we are Christians and believers in Christ, we, we too are given to do what Israel did. We don't like that God. Uh, we don't want that God. We think we would be better off with a different God, the God of our own choosing, the God of our own making, the God of our own imagination. Can we admit this about ourselves, that, that we, by our flesh, are idol makers? That's what John Calvin said about the human heart, that, that every heart of man, including yours and mine, is an idol factory given always to make for itself the God of its own choosing. We don't have to be an artist sculpting some idol of wood, stone, or metal in order to commit the sin of idolatry. All we have to do is grow impatient to want the pleasures of sin and we become idolaters, making a God of our own imagination to suit our purposes. So as we, as we continue this sermon series in Psalm 18, let's, let's look this morning at verses 7 through 15. And let this be the first point, the anger of God. Verse 7 reads, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked. Because he was angry. And then what follows is really an an extended description uh, of God in his anger. Uh, Verse 8 follows, uh, Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. So it's not just the anger of God, but even the anger intense anger of God. Scripture also speaks of the fury of God. And although that word is not used here, it is the fury of God that would seem to be in view. So here is an aspect of of God's being and character that sinners are given to deny. The anger of God is, is... Technically not a, an attribute of God, but it is rather, in a sense, the consequence, the eventuality, the reality of a number of things that are considered attributes of God. Why, why is God angry, we might ask? Ought He not calm down a bit? But He is a God of holiness, being, being sinners ourselves, we, we have the capacity to ignore sin, whether, whether our own sin or the sins of others. Because we are not holy, we, we can let sin go as if it doesn't matter. Or at best, perhaps we just feel annoyed by sin rather than being fully angry. Of course, there is so much sin in the world, whether committed by us or others, that if we did respond in anger at sin, we would be angry all the time. 
Well, that's exactly where God is in His anger. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And then another attribute of God to bring him to anger is his justice. It's it's the holiness of God along with his justice that stirs him to anger. And here is an important qualifier regarding the uh, anger of God, that he is just in his anger. As a holy God, we, we, uh, he ought to be angry at sin. Uh, someone might read Psalm 18 and say, ought not, uh, ought not he calm down? But the answer is no. He, he ought to be angry at sin. And, and he is angry at sin because he is a just God. Because he is justice himself. And here's another qualifier, that while we might at times feel a righteous anger, there is often nothing we can do about the thing that causes us to be angry. Take, for example, the war in Ukraine. The invasion of a nation by a a hostile neighbor might make us angry. It, it, It really ought to make us angry, but what can we do about it? Well, we can't do much, at least, about it, and so we pray. We pray to the God who we rightly expect also to be angry at such injustice, and the one who can do something about it. But next comes this, uh, this further needed qualification that, that being a holy God and the God of justice God never sins in his anger. In Psalm 18, we we must not see God as flying off the handle, as we say, losing his temper and and going beyond his own justice in his judgment for sin. This is why we need to understand God's anger in terms of both his holiness and his justice. We too can experience a, a righteous indignation. We might even say a we, we can experience a holy anger. There are times when we ought to be angry, uh, when it would even be wrong for us not to be angry, but what do we do with our anger? For us, anger so very quickly leads us to sin. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry, and do not sin. And I think by saying be angry, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that anger itself is not inherently, not automatically sinful. Be angry, he writes, but he also adds, and do not sin. Because for us, anger so very quickly leads to sin, but not so with God. Not only is it right for God to be angry, it is also right for God to act according to his anger, and when he does act in his anger, he does so in justice. And this comes to bear upon our understanding of Christian conversion. What what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved? 
We've made the point before that faith requires knowledge. You, you can't believe in something or someone that you don't know. If someone comes into the room and, and asks, uh, can you believe it? It's amazing. Can you believe it? Well, we would, we would surely respond by saying, uh, believe what? I need more information. Tell me, inform me, give me greater knowledge of what it is uh, that there is to believe. And one of the things that, that we must know in order to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved is that God is angry with us for our sin. Even more, we must have gained the conviction that, that God is holy and, and just in His anger, even as He is angry with us. Let's make it very personal. To have faith in Jesus unto salvation we must know and believe that God is angry with me. And this is the point where we can so easily start making a God of our own imagination, uh, really, to set aside any one of God's attributes is to create in our minds a false God. But the attributes that are due to be set aside in order to avoid finding ourselves under his anger are his holiness and his justice. To some degree, it really comes down to his holiness. I, if you set aside the holiness of God, then the justice of God can perhaps be allowed to, to stay. If God is not holy, then our sin doesn't matter all that much. And uh, we can maintain a sense of God's justice mitigated by a denial of his, of his holiness. But, but when you take these two attributes, his holiness and his justice, then we are in trouble as sinners apart from Christ. And that's really the purpose of God's law, that, that we should gain conviction in our sin. We might allow that God's law calls us to be good people, and we might say, quite proudly, if that's what God wants, these Ten Commandments, well, at least there aren't 11 commandments, uh, or 15, or 20. I can handle 10, and I'll be a good person. But we must see that the law of God is really the expression of God's own holiness. And the point is that we were created in His image. Mankind started out righteous and holy without sin. And so the law of God calls us, requires us, even demands of us that we be holy as He is holy. And so it is that the law of God, again, just the, just the Ten Commandments of God alone, the law of God must bring us to the conviction of our sin before a holy and just God, the God who is rightly angry with us and will judge us for our sin. So the second point is the darkness of God. This is a, a curious thing, I, I, I should think, uh, if anyone cares to stop and think about it, the darkness of God. It's, it's not real common. It doesn't get said with great frequency in Scripture, but there are references in God's Word to what we might call the darkness of God. 
In Psalm 18, verse 11, it says, He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. For another reference, as I mentioned, I made sure to, uh, to read Exodus 20 for our reading of God's law. And, and, and we read as far as verse 21 because it says, The people stood far off where Moses drew near, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I think the, the experience of Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai was a lot like the Apostle John's experience in the book of Revelation. I think Moses and, and John had the same challenge of, of writing or, or of trying to write down what they saw, trying to describe it. You can almost hear them see, saying, well, it was, it was like this. I, I, I saw it like this. Like this, I'm, I'm doing my best to explain what I saw and to relate to you my experience in being in the very presence of God. And here then is, is the problem with, with idolatry. When, when idolatry is creating a God after your own imagination, in one sense, the very clear teaching of Scripture is that God cannot be imagined. In other words, He cannot be completely understood. Here, here is another attribute of God, that he is, he is finally incomprehensible. Which doesn't mean that we cannot know God at all, only that part of knowing God is knowing that He is more than you will ever know. He is truly and ultimately transcendent. Another attribute of God closely related to His incomprehensibility. I, I love these words, incomprehensible and incomprehensibility. Uh, incomprehensible is six syllables long, uh, but to make it even longer, you, you, uh, you go to incomprehensibility. Eight syllables. How many eight-syllable words do you know? Well, here's one of them. But greater than the word itself is what it means in our understanding of God. Or we might say our lack of understanding of what God is. He is transcendent. You can't imagine Him. And if you start out with your imagination, you will, you will not arrive at understanding. You will go horribly astray from truly knowing God. And yet, even when we stick to God's revelation of Himself by His Word, which we must... But even then we must accept this, that even by his revelation of himself, we come to know that he is transcendent. He goes very far beyond, infinitely beyond us. So that in the end, even as we know him, yet he is incomprehensible. There is a darkness to God. And since darkness is often used in Scripture as a, a metaphor for evil, we'll let it be clear that that's not what Scripture means by the darkness of God. And, uh, or, or in that respect, First uh, John 1, verse 5 even says, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Well, then why are we told of the darkness of God in Psalm 18? Uh, why was there a sense of God's darkness at Mount Sinai? 
and why, when Solomon dedicated the temple to God in 2 Chronicles 6, verse 1, why did he say that God would dwell in thick darkness? Surely to maintain the mystery of God, the transcendence of God, that God is incomprehensible. And the point of knowing that God is transcendent and incomprehensible is to bring us to worship God all the more in our knowledge of Him. You can't put God in your back pocket. You can't pull Him out when you need Him and put Him away when you think you don't. And again, this is the popular version of God. But the point is to see that the popular version of God is not God, but a false God made by the imagination of man. And so we shift to the light of God. The third point is the light of of God, and here obviously is is the more common metaphor for God. Again, First John one five says God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And at Mount Sinai, God manifested Himself in lightning and fire on the mountain. In other words, in the appearance of light. And think of the Apostle Paul on the on the road to Damascus when Christ appeared to him so suddenly and, and, and in such blazing light that Paul was blinded by the, by the light of Christ. But coming back to Psalm 18, it, it speaks of fire from the mouth of God. It speaks of glowing coals flaming forth from him. And it even speaks of, or even as it speaks of the thick darkness uh, under his feet, the thick darkness with water, yet verse 12 says, out of the brightness, the very, next, the very next thing, out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. So here's the light of God. But the thing to see, and I would guess you're picking up on it, the thing to see and remember is that the psalmist is, is still speaking of God in his anger. When we think of darkness, we, we think of evil, and, and rightly so, because God's Word uses the image of darkness to, con, to convey sin and evil. And when we think of light, we, we, we think of what is good and right, and again, rightly so, because God's Word uses the image of light to convey goodness and holiness and righteousness and even our salvation. Jesus said, I am the light of the world which is the second of his seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. But once again, let us, let us not limit God by his own revelation of himself to us because the judgment of God, the judgment of God will not come at night, will not come under the cover of darkness, but it will come in the day of his judgment. A day is appointed when God will judge the world. A dawn will come. The sun will rise upon a day that will be the last day. And our Lord has taught us that nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then, he says, 
how you hear. And this, and this is, and this is the context of the light of God in in verse eighteen, uh, that judgment will come with light. And and who would want such a God, a God of anger, a God of righteous indignation, a God of judgment, who, as Psalm eighteen says sends out his arrows and scatters his enemies, who flashes forth lightnings to rout those who oppose him. Who would want such a God? Well, how about the one who is oppressed and and suffering under the attacks and domination of the evil one? When is the judgment of God seen and understood as a good thing? When God's enemies are our enemies. Here is the comfort of God's judgment. Here is the light of God that he is coming to judge the nations. But it will only be comfort to us if we come to know by our our faith in Christ that we have already been judged. That's what salvation is. That we in Christ have already been judged, that, that His judgment against us has already been satisfied. And how can that be? That the light of God is not something that we fear. That the deadly judgment of God is not something that we expect to fall upon us. It can only be as we are trusting in Christ. It can only be as we are trusting in Christ. It can only be as we have this knowledge of God as well that Christ has come as the light of the world. And that there was a day in history. You know the story. There was a day in history when darkness fell upon Christ as he was on the cross. Darkness fell upon him because there he was enduring the judgment of God for us. And he was turning away from us the anger of God against us. The message of salvation is explicit, starting with verse 16 in Psalm 18. But even now, as we consider the anger of God, the darkness of God, and the light of God, Let us determine to let God be God. Let us not stand in judgment of God, thinking to help him be a better God. We must receive his revelation of himself. We must know that he is holy and he is just. That he is darkness and that he is light. And the light of God must be the light of God. That exposes our sin. Not so that we scurry away like bugs to the darkness, but so that we will see Christ as our light, our salvation, so that we would see Christ as the very light of the world, the one who saves us, so that we will put our trust in him. Amen. Please pray with me. Light in darkness, O God. You are the God who is truly incomprehensible. 
There is a darkness about you. And even as you are light, so that light comes in the anticipation of your judgment for us, against us. And so we are so thankful that though we cannot comprehend you fully, yet you have made yourself known to us even in this, that you have given Christ to be the light of the world, to be our light unto salvation. And we pray that each and every one here this morning would not leave here except putting their faith in Jesus Christ and going forth to live in the light of that salvation that is theirs in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.